Hello, I'm Kevin Barrett of Truth Jihad Radio. I can say whatever I want and bring on guests who say pretty much what they want to say. Thanks to listeners like you who subscribe by way of the subscribe at Substack button at truthjihad.com. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome to the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett doing the Truth Jihad here every weekend evening. Well, actually, just Friday on Revolution.Radio, the premier free speech network. Please do support Revolution.Radio in whichever way you can. You can figure out how by going to their website, which is not a .com or a .info or a .org or anything like that. It's a .radio, Revolution dot radio i'm kevin barrett of truthjihad.com talking to all sorts of really interesting people and that is the ultimate fringe benefit of the fairly low-paid job i took after being essentially driven from academia by the custodians of the mainstream worldview in general and the minions of the cheney bush regime in particular i've gotten to talk to all sorts of great folks and now I'm bringing on somebody I've, I've corresponded with him, but I don't think we actually did a show. Uh, Daniel Pinchbeck is one of the avant-garde thinkers in the area of, well, what should we call it? Um, shamanism meets idealism, philosophical idealism meets now uh, increasingly social criticism, which is apparently why he's no longer writing for the New York Times, Rolling Stone and Esquire, but publishing at Substack, where I also publish a great place for people who don't want to be micromanaged by mainstream editors trying to stamp out the last vestige of original thought. Well, Daniel is full of original thoughts, and I think he's barking up a whole lot of right trees quite brilliantly. So let's hear it from him. Hey, welcome, Daniel Pinchback. How Thank are you? you? For me, thanks for having me, Kevin. Can you hear me? Yes, you're coming through loud and clear. Cool. You know, last time I corresponded with you was back in the general epoch of 2012, because you were one of the most you know, well-known people talking about the Mayan calendar and things like that. And I had some of your collaborators on the show. I don't think you managed to ever come on, though, before. And all sorts of interesting stuff has happened then. And I just I noticed that your media criticism and propaganda criticism lately has been superb. That's what I've been doing now for quite some time. So uh, maybe we could start by uh, talking about your experience going through the mainstream media and coming out the other side. Uh, sure. I mean, I, I was uh, in my 20s. Uh, I worked in uh, I started as an editor and I worked up my way up sort of in different magazines. Uh, and then I started writing freelance for um, Wired, Rolling Stone, uh, New York Times, Esquire and so on. And it was actually very useful because a lot of the pieces that ended up being part of my first book uh, began as magazine articles. So I could get funded to do research, whether it was to go down to the uh, Amazon or to go to Africa uh, or to uh, visit the Burning Man Festival, which I did for Rolling Stone. But uh, then sort of 
you know, when that book came out, um, uh, it was really with the second book that I think I, I was no longer able to write for the mainstream, uh, the book, the second book, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, because I'd really kind of shifted to feeling that the sort of scientific materialist, um, you know, reductive materialism worldview was was mistaken. And then actually we had to look at like Jungian, Jungian ideas, shamanistic ideas, as you mentioned, uh, idealism, monistic or analytic idealism, this idea that consciousness is actually more like the underlying factor rather than, than consciousness just being an epiphenomenon of physical matter. And uh, that, that is a paradigm that is still uh, not really allowed in the, uh, the mainstream of the establishment, whether the universities or the media. So if you're coming strongly from that perspective, I think it's hard to get to get a hearing. Yeah, I noticed that even in the humanities, which was where I lived in the academy, uh, it was definitely uh, kind of a, a marginalized perspective. But it was there, at least you could up until 9-11, you could do kind of whatever you wanted in the academy. As far as I could tell, it was pretty hard to get lynched for going up against the mainstream worldview. And in fact, the humanities were kind of proud torchbearers of this sort of non-reductivist uh, scientific materialistic worldview. In some ways, it wasn't so bad. And then it seems like things got a lot worse uh, with the new millennium. And, of course, uh, I'm one of those people that thinks 9-11 changed everything uh, for the entirely worse uh, by design. You know, after they blew up the Trade Center, conducted a satanic human sacrifice by murdering nearly 3,000 people to get a reaction. You know, you've written about Ed Bernays, or, uh, Bernays uh, nephew, I guess, Mark Randolph. Mark Bernays Randolph, who was the CEO of Netflix, um, and you know, the Bernays and his notion of these public relations stunts that heard the masses below the level of consciousness uh, was one of the uh, key people for those of us who were analyzing 9-11 as one of these murderous PR stunts to change the direction of the human herd. I wondered, if, have you ever talked about that? Uh, what do you mean, have I talked about that? Well, I mean, about the, about the 9-11 truth issue, the question of whether 9-11 was essentially a, a murderous PR stunt by uh, imperial insiders. Sure. I mean, you know, always, always the problem is it's so hard to establish, uh, you know, you know, act, actual knowledge rather than kind of hypothesis. But I mean, you know, we, we do know that, uh, you know, Cheney and Rumsfeld were part of the Project for a New American Century, which years before Bush came into office, uh, published like a huge think tank piece where they said that, you know, the U.S. needed to have uh, to be able to access the strategic oil reserves of the Middle East. And we could only do that in the way they wanted us to do it uh, if we had a, a Pearl Harbor level uh, incident to incite uh, the American public to be behind uh, a war effort. So, you know, when, when 9-11 happened, I mean, not only did the Patriot Act get released like the next day, I think, which was, you know, obviously had been prepared well in advance, uh, but also, yeah, we immediately launched into this war in Iraq, which had absolutely nothing to do with, uh, you know, 9-11. Uh, yeah, there were all sorts of incongruities. Like, it does seem like the hijackers had been trained to fly at a CIA flight school in Miami. And even though they were, you know, obliterated in, in, the, in the crash, they found some of their passports on the ground and stuff. So, yeah, all sorts of really confusing and crazy stuff, you know, a, as we see with the uh, virus circumstance. I mean, it feels like... Um, I really like the work of uh, Gurdjieff, uh, who talks about sort of the law of octaves. And it sort of felt like 9-11 was like the first toad in like a new octave for human society or 
post-industrial civilization. Uh, you know, maybe 2008 was was also a, a note, but certainly uh, the pandemic is like a big next note. You know. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that. Uh, the the uh, because I, there there are some you know, some real. Re- I'm actually doing a talk on on Sunday about uh, 20 years of false flags with 9/11 and COVID being the two bookends of that 20 years. Um, how, how does the the COVID issue sort of uh, develop or harmonize uh, or whatever disharmonize with uh, with 9/11? Well, it just it mean uh, you know whether you know the virus was you know totally uh, accident or um, you know there there was uh, you know conspiratorial you know agenda behind you know it being released in a certain way. Uh, let, you know even assuming it was an accident, it was clear that uh, you know it, it either was picked up you know. For to serve the agenda of, of certain groups, uh, you know, or just you know naturally fell fell into that. So, for instance, obviously we know that uh, the billionaire class has become you know massively enriched since the pandemic, while almost while almost everybody else has become much poorer, and um, you know a lot of uh, you know re- restrictions have been put on you know freedom of movement, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, uh, which also seem to be um, things that were kind of prepared. Uh, in, in the in the wings, uh, when you look at what the World Economic Forum you know has been looking out and, and talking about, and so on. Mm-hmm. yeah, ab- absolutely. It's uh, I, I do think that the geostrategic side of it maybe has been less appreciated than the civil liberties side. Like with nine eleven, a lot of folks quickly noticed that the Patriot Act, as you say, had been prepared in advance. And so there was a kind of a war on freedom going on. And that was the name of Nafiz Ahmed's first book, actually, the one that woke up a lot of important people like Gore Vidal to the fact that 9-11 was a false flag. And now with COVID, the attack on civil liberties and freedom of thought and Internet freedom is so extreme that that's got all the attention. But I, I sort of wonder if there isn't a deeper and perhaps more basic and important uh, geopolitical geostrategic aspect here where uh, 9-11 was primarily about maintaining and expanding a certain kind of empire uh, by way of the Middle East, which probably wasn't such a great idea. And I'm not sure whose empire was really benefiting there. But then with COVID, clearly, geopolitically, we're living in a moment right now that looks like a very dangerous, possibly pre-World War III type of moment where you have a rising number two power challenging a dominant number one power. And that Thucydides trap work of Graham Allison suggests that two thirds of the time that happens, it turns into a, a preemptive war by the number one power to stop the rise of the number two power. I'll be talking about this with Matt Arad in the second hour, actually. He's just analyzed anti-China propaganda. So it just seems ju- just as having an insane story demonizing Muslims as crazed kamikaze hijackers that just got rammed in everybody's subconscious on 9-11, was all about you know a war on parts of the Islamic world. Likewise, blaming COVID on Chinese bats with the implication that those crazy Chinese people love to slurp bat soup, uh, kind of a racist trope, as it were, that works great you know at the subliminal level even for nice liberals. Uh, there, there's that, and then there's blame them for doing it. You know, say you know the U.S. money built this, you know, put up this Wuhan Institute this. And, and sent the bat research there, which looks to me like it was setting them up. So 
I, I'm wondering whether the parallel between these two events isn't so. It's basically these Western bankster, uh, whatever you want to call them, they're institutional class I, I, of. Yeah, Kevin, to be honest with you, I, I look at it very differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, yeah, I don't have, I don't have, I don't share your perspective on this at all. I mean, this book that I that I just wrote about, uh, which is worth taking a look at, Pseudo Pandemic by Ian Harris. Uh, I think he, he's too far into the sort of paranoid conspiracy um, stream, but he has done a lot of research. And yeah, I, th- I think there's actually a lot of, um, you know, as he goes into that book, a, l- a lot of um, complicity uh, between China and the West. And, um, you know, first of all, I mean, I mean, China is obviously a you know, very totalitarian regime. Uh, you know, China has also made a biowarfare a, uh, you know, major kind of, kind of uh, you know, plan over the last 10 years, creating viruses that target different ethnic groups. Uh, they've been, they've been, you know, Chinese researchers have been caught like stealing, you know, samples of very dangerous viruses, uh, bringing them back to China. Uh, there's this very st- strange story about this guy, uh, was named Charles Kaiser, who, um, Charles Lieber, excuse me, who uh, was a Harvard uh, chemist, nanotechnologist who was building a secret lab in Wuhan. Uh, Echo Health, uh, was working in, in you know, consonance with uh, the, the Chinese, uh, you know, the, the laboratory in Wuhan. Uh, if, there wa- if there was a, a malfunction and the bat virus emerged, uh, it seems to have been a, 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 you know, combination of forces. But then also what seems to have happened is that China is now being seen as the model for the West in, in certain respects. I mean, if you look at the last World Economic Forum, uh, the Chinese premier gave the opening talk. Uh, if you look at recent articles in The Atlantic, there's, you know, in other magazines talking about how the censorship model of China and the sort of social credit system is something, you know, that the West, you know, that, you know if you're from, from the financial elites perspective is, is, is a good direction, uh, but they can't introduce it through a top-down government method. So if you're going to do it in, in the West, it has to be done through with the collusion of private you know, tech companies like Facebook and Google and, and, and so on. So that's what we're seeing is like a test run of sort of Chinese level censorship. And if they're able to institute the, you know, biometric identifications, the vaccine passports, and the uh, you know centralized digital currencies, then then they really will have a control system that's almost identical uh, to what's happening in China. Whereas if somebody's out of line or uh, you know acting or speaking against you know the prevailing authorities, they would be able to cut off their their money supply or their vaccine boosters, however, whatever they prefer. Mm-hmm. So yes, I think actually it's it's more like a collusion between China and certain elements in the West, unfortunately. Uh, than it is, uh, and, and the sort of saber rattling may just be like a, another kind of false kind of aspect. Well, I, I, that's always possible. Um, if you if you look at the history of uh, imperial expansion and warfare and, and the collision of different empires with other empires, what you see is a lot of collusion. You know, everybody's always colluding for private benefit for. Uh, for other, you know, there are all kinds of reasons. For instance, you know, during the World Wars, everybody was still trading with everybody. Um, you know, the U.S., the big banksters who run the West, uh, based in London and New York and so on, some of them um, the high, at the highest level helped finance Hitler and were still uh, sure. helping Hitler to some extent during the war. And they were certainly totally helping the Soviet Union become the threat that it became. So, so the, fact, the fact that they collude doesn't mean that they're not actually also fighting. And then the fact that one empire imitates the other empire's social control system, such as before World War II, everybody rolls back freedom because in, in, in wartime, everybody has to lose freedom. So if you see a war coming, the first thing you have to do is get your society ready to take away freedom. 
right? So to me, uh, everything you said makes sense, but that doesn't mean that there isn't the chance of real war in the same way that there have been so many other times in history. I mean, I guess that's always a chance. What do I know? I mean, this is a little bit, to be honest with you, I'm not like a geopolitical strategist. I mean, I have my perspective based on stuff that I've read, as you do, so I don't want to pretend to a level of expertise that I honestly don't have here. Uh, yeah, so so it makes me a little uncomfortable actually to, to you know, even pretend that I that I you know know about you know I have you know I haven't been to China since I was a kid, um, you know I, I mean but um, you know I, I do think that um, the odds of there being uh, you know a, a sort of nuclear missile you know conflict level event between uh, the West and China is like very very unlikely. Um, but you know the, the, the war has now taken on a more to, to, totalizing um, kind of a, aspect, where it has to do with like information war, uh, using uh, you know hacking, using um, you know as we saw with, with uh, you know Russia over the last you know so so yeah I mean you know swaying people's opinions, attention, grabbing their attention, censoring them. We, I mean we're living like a sort of total state of war in, 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 a, in a strange way. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't think it's the same type of war, you know, is, is, you know, the, the, the old type of war is being fought less and less, it seems. Well, there's definitely, there's plenty of strange new things going on. And, and speaking of which, uh, you, you wrote a book on occult control systems, uh, UFOs, aliens, other dimensions, and future timelines. And we're now getting leaks in the New York times and places like that, uh, from, disclosure people who claim that there have been cases of ufos shutting down nuclear missiles you mentioned there's you don't think there's much of a chance of a u.s china nuclear war and well if, if, if the ufos are shutting down people's nuclear weapons then that would reduce the chances what, what's what's your take on that subject you know I, i'm not an expert on that you probably know quite a bit more than i do uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, it's a very, very complex. I mean, you know, actually, my entry point was the crop circles uh, in England, which I wrote about for my book, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. And, um, you know, I, I learned about them. Um, I'd written the first book, which was kind of very much about like entheogens and psychedelics. And, you know, often on psychedelics, you see these incredible patterns and other forms of highly organized information that don't seem something that your brain could produce on its own. And I guess in a way I was wondering if there was any corollary in our, you know, kind of external world. And I discovered these crop circles, these patterns that appear uh, in fields in England and other places. I ended up spending two summers in England and, and going to a lot of them, interviewing all the people involved in the phenomenon. And um, yeah, I mean, ultimately I would say that I'm, you know, my, my, my kind of strong hypothesis is that they do represent a um, communication between humanity and another form of, um, you know, sort of maybe galactic level intelligence or consciousness that, um, you know, seems, you know, it may actually be different consciousnesses who are, who are, you know, expressing themselves and sending messages to us or trying to get our attention, but it seems, seems quite benevolent uh, and it seems to be offering us different types of like, information if we're willing to, uh, you know, take it seriously. Um, so yeah, so that's one part of it. And then there's this, uh, more, um, very, very complex aspect of the, uh, the UFOs, the abductions, um, you know, the Jack Valet yeah, is, is one of the people who studied this uh, in great depth. He was actually the model for a true foes character in close encounters of the third kind. And he ended up, you know, you know, because it's all paradoxical, and many of these encounters seem almost ridiculous and make no sense, and so on, and have like a weird, you know, almost like humor to them, or kind of horror humor. 
Uh, so we ended up, you know, theorizing that the whole phenomena was somehow functioning as a uh, consciousness control system, uh, where they were feeding us, you know, bits of, you know, uh, ideas about, about how the universe might be constructed, but then they were kind of like making it impossible for us to construct like a complete uh, narrative out of it, in a way. Yeah, Valet's work is is very interesting. I, I got to uh, exchange some uh, correspondence with him uh, back in the '90s, I think it was. And so, uh, do, do you do you think that the people? So the, the, you mentioned that it seems benevolent, and I assume you're talking about the crop circles and perhaps I don't know about the abductions though. Uh, among so the people I've had, you not seem benevolent. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I've had people on the show, like Paul Hellyer, the former Canadian defense minister, who says that there's a sort of a galactic federation like Star Wars. Of course, it could be more interdimensional and psychedelic like you're describing. I don't know. But he anyway, he says that they're benevolent, but there might be some rogue elements out there as well. Uh, and he thinks that the current uh, Earth leaders are pretty much rogue elements themselves, whether or not they're working with anybody from anywhere else. So that's one perspective. I also had uh, David Jacobs, author of The Threat, on the show sure. 10 or 15 years ago. He said he really stresses the, the downside of the abductions uh, and thinks that we're being replaced by hybrids. Um, so on, on that spectrum, I mean, with, with some of these other ideas, it's it's easier to come to grips with sort of what, you know, what's probably going on. But with this, I have a hard time because it's it's kind of all over the place. There's some and, and as Valet pointed out, it's, it's, all, it's like pranks. Yeah. We have to be careful to like over literalize because we, you know, as I said, we don't really know. But, you know, it's there's sort of a narrative that seems to be suggested is that there are, you know, benevolent levels of galactic uh, intelligence and civilization and, you know, maybe something like a galactic federation. But that's like at a very high point, maybe maybe interdimensional or, or you know, beyond, beyond, you know, the physical in some sense. Uh, and then there are these other kind of entities, uh, the greys, who, yeah, don't, don't necessarily even seem to be, like, from, like, another world and another solar system. They, they almost seem more like gremlins or, like, you know, interdimensional bacteria or something like that that is, like, you know, that, that's, like, trying to extract uh, some energy uh, from us in some way. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's super complex and, and uh, you know, quite, quite uh, difficult to unpack. And so when we try to come to grips with some of these uh, esoteric and extraordinary uh, levels of reality, uh, I guess there's probably no substitute for a certain amount of personal experience. And, you know, I, I when I was in the academy, I, I did a certain amount of study of mysticism, which is sort of the tradition of these extraordinary experiences within uh, Western religion. And you've studied shamanism, and I guess you've been involved with uh, ayahuasca uh, brand of, of shamanism. So to what extent has that informed your take on these things and, and how has it? Uh, well, it's totally informed my take on everything. I mean, I had, you know, very profound, uh, you know, psychic experiences, uh, you know, paranormal experiences, uh, you know, objects materializing, um, you know, uh, synchronicities, t telepathic connections and voices in my head from other people. I mean, it's like, yeah. So, so um, essentially, you know, my, my whole worldview shifted. I mean, what's very difficult for us in our modern Western uh, kind of language and society is that we're embedded in uh, kind of dualism and, and literalism. And th those things make it very difficult for us to come to grips with phenomena that may not be so dualistic or so literal uh, in the same way. 
the best book, uh, one of the best books that I read that that explores this kind of like the, 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 the sort of, you know, understanding that we would have to kind of like push back into is by this guy, Patrick Harper. Uh, uh, it's called uh, The Philosopher's Secret Fire, uh, where he kind of looks at our world, the modern world, almost from the shamanistic or, or indigenous perspective, kind of turns the gaze around. And um, that, you know, for these, for these cultures, even this idea of the, you know, the, the physical body was not even necessarily like a literal and real thing. It also had an imaginal dimension. It could also go into these uh, other, other invisible worlds and so on. So, um, yeah, so, so, you know, language and thought construct a certain kind of reality, a certain paradigm. Uh, we've gone very far along into the construction of a, you know, technocratic, uh, you know, scientific reductive paradigm. And uh, our language continually reinforces that way of seeing the world. And it's extremely, you know, delicate, and difficult to back out of that. Indeed. Yeah, I, I, I can completely relate. You know, I, I, uh, had some, uh, I would call them unusual experiences, but I don't think they're really all that unusual uh, experiences of things like telepathy and precognition and uh, and interesting states of consciousness when I was young. And that was even before I learned how to grow magic mushrooms from the McKenna's uh, book back uh, in, when would that have been? Right when it came out. So that was, I think it was in high school or early college, mid-70s, something like that. Uh, and that did uh, along with various other things, conditioned me for uh, realizing that the, you know, the social constructed reality that we're in with its scientific materialistic reductionism is not the whole story by any means. Uh, I actually recently read a great philosophy book um, that is, is good for kind of getting your bearings in these things uh, that you recommended, uh, Bernardo Castrop's uh, Why Materialism is Baloney. And, and so, the, the, can you can you relate uh, philosophical idealism to the reason why uh, that uh, you're talking about people being overly literal? Well, if if we're living in essentially a kind of a, a communicative universe, it's it's all uh, it's all meaning. We're living in a, a universe of meaning rather than matter. That it would uh, indeed make sense to avoid being overly literal. Yeah, exactly. Beautifully said. I mean, uh, so I think that uh, Bernardo Castro is super amazing. And uh, I haven't I only read some of that book. I read the other one, The Idea of the World. Uh, and immediately he's up there on a, on, a, on, a, on a small pantheon of thinkers who, who I think can be very, very helpful to kind of uh, move uh, our you know, collective understanding to, to a new level. Uh, Ahmed Goswami uh, is another one. Uh, in, in my work, I've talked a lot about the uh, the physics of the soul, uh, and I think the self-aware universe. Uh, Goswami is a quantum physicist who looks at how um, kind of the he wrote a, I think he wrote a manual of quantum mechanics, but he, but he looks at how through uh, kind of quantum physics we can actually begin to theorize around how there could be a sort of reincarnating aspect of our being, um, and. Um, yeah, how things like the subtle bodies might exist as quantum phenomena, you know, within consciousness. And and you like uh, Kastrup, uh, Gaswami is a uh, idealist, uh, which is a term I think I first discovered in, in Rudolf Steiner, who's also one of my heroes. His his uh, first book, Philosophy of Freedom, uh, basically was a refutation of Kantian dualism and uh, promoted instead this idea of idealism. So essentially, idealism. So the, you know, the idea that we've received in, in our in our Western education 
is that uh, you know there was the Big Bang, you know there was matter that was released, uh, then a process of evolution, you know the the the, the you know the matter cooled, you know, turned into just into planets, uh, you know there was a random process of physical evolution, you know more complexity, and led to you know an accidental creation of kind of self consciousness. But people like Kastrup and Steiner, Goswami, uh, you know almost every mystical thinker. Um, and uh, others think it's kind of the opposite, that actually there's, you know, un- underlying reality is consciousness, uh, uh, you know, kind of a instinctive yet unified field of consciousness that actually kind of uh, instinctively seeks to kind of construct uh, vehicles that can contain more and more sophisticated uh, levels of this consciousness so that that consciousness can learn about itself, reflect upon itself, uh, create more, discover more, and so on. So we are actually, uh, you know, kind of, we have an illusion of separation. We're actually aspects of this of this unified instinctive consciousness as it discovers its uh, creative abilities. And yeah, from that perspective, you can also then think about having, as Castro talks about, kind of a hermeneutics of the world again. Like we're, 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 we're liberated to, you know, think about meaning again and to look at things as meaningful rather than meaningless. So it's it's like a profound uh, positive transformation. Uh, you know, what what we made the jump. And, and people have done work on synchronicity. Uh, you know, Jung, of course, being the seminal guy, but a lot of people have followed up on that. And all sorts of people have noticed synchronicities in life. That uh, you know, sometimes they're along the lines of a kind of vaguely psychic event, like you just you know who's calling, like right before the phone rings, you know so, you know who's calling you, and the phone rings, and then you really know who's calling you before you pick it up. That sort of thing. And, uh, and of course, there's much more powerful ones out there as well. I think most people have experienced some of them, and they seem to operate at a level of of meaning, uh, like almost like like uh, poems or metaphors, uh, bringing together these different things uh, in, in a meaningful way. It's like the universe is constructing meaning through those things, or God is sending you a message in the uh, traditional monotheistic terms. Uh, and uh, it, it it has always struck me as bizarre that so many people have accepted the the scientific reductionist story that there's there are no psychic experiences there's no meaning uh these these synchronicities are really just coincidences but we all kind of know that's not true we've all had some psychic experiences i think so the way that they've gotten us to sort of deny our own experience is is really bizarre uh, maybe you can reflect on that and sort of who is this they that's doing this and why are they doing it? Uh, that's a great, that's an interesting question. And also, you know, obviously a very long and complex uh, issue. Um, yeah. I mean, um, um, I mean, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, you could say it's just self-organizing. Like we, you know, over the last four centuries, five centuries, we became, obsessed with materiality, with, uh, you know, manipulating uh, energies and physical forces uh, on a level that previous uh, civilizations and cultures just hadn't really been as interested in, in doing that. And our minds kind of, uh, you know, that, that kind of inexorably had an impact on our minds um, where we prioritized kind of, uh, you know, the left brain aspects of like reason, uh, logic, and we kind of uh, suppressed uh, you know, intuition, uh, vision, spontaneity, imagination, and so on. And uh, that that you know, we sort of, we sort of then constructed like a prison around ourselves, um, uh, where we sort of locked ourselves into this like no way out structure. 
Uh, now, it could also be considered if you have a shamanic perspective or a mystical perspective and you accept that there are other you know, beings and forces in the universe, uh, one could also suggest that this you know, may have been constructed by you know, different forces that are seeking maybe to use uh, humanity, you know, human consciousness uh, for their own ends. This is something that like, somebody like Rudolf Steiner explored a lot. Uh, Steiner saw himself as an esoteric Christian. Uh, he uh, was a visionary from, from childhood. He could see into all these other worlds. And he began to put together kind of a visionary philosophy um, where he talked about these kind of different beings rather than just being like, uh, you know, God and the devil. There were all these different, you know, spiritual beings and realms that, that sought to work on humanity in different ways. Some of them benevolent, some of them malevolent. And two of the most, uh, you know, well, I guess, you know, there was, he talked about Lucifer, the Luciferic beings, and, and Araban, the Aramonic beings. And Lucifer literally means light bringer, so it's um, a force that pulls us, like, up towards, like, beauty and, and grandeur and glamour and genius, but also pulls us away from the earth and the earthly. And Araban is a force that pulls us down towards sterility, uh, minerality, uh, material technologies, and so on. So Steiner actually prophesied back in, like, the 20s that, um, this period of the 21st century, we would see the incarnation of Araban, just in the way that the Christ had incarnated uh, 2,000 years ago. Uh, and Araban, for me, you know, could very well be generalized artificial intelligence, uh, neural implants, uh, kind of the uh, the birth of a machine consciousness through 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 human beings, the solid state entity that John Lilly talked about. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting perspective, and it's very different from some of the eschatology that I hear from Christian and especially Muslim sources. I am a bit of a follower of uh, Sheikh Imran Hossein, the world's leading uh, Muslim eschatologist. And uh, from that perspective, the situation you're describing is, is generally considered to be more that uh, there's a sort of revolt against uh, God and creation going on. And that there are uh, the, the satanic beings are uh, essentially um, perpetually egotistically dissatisfied with the with creation and and with the creator, and so they're in this sort of angry revolt all the time, and that that has produced the scientific uh, paradigm that we're in now, as you know, humans uh, have decided that they're gods, and they've called you know created humanism, which is the worship of the human, and that's led to trying to get more and more power. Uh, for the humans, that's, you know, ultimately that's me, 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 I want more power, which is is this uh, sort of shaitani uh, principle. And that's created this civilization that's so uh, obsessed with ever-increasing power and and pursuing these kinds of extreme things that you're uh, you're discussing. So that, that paradigm, which is kind of much closer, you know, what I'm describing is more what we would hear from, from the Muslim and Christian eschatologists. How, how does that relate to Steiner's? Uh, well, I mean, you know, for, just from hearing that the first time, I don't know if I could, you know, give it justice. But um, to me, it, it didn't sound like contradictory at all. It sounded like they could be uh, wedded together. And in fact, something I, I very much love to do in, in my work and in my books, uh, which include uh, Breaking Open the Head on Psychedelic Shamanism, 2012, uh, the different prophecy streams and apocalyptic streams from different cultures, and also How Soon Is Now, which is more on the ecological crisis and system design, is to kind of synthesize a lot of ideas that, that many people think are uh, in opposition with each other and see how they actually you know, support each other. So for instance, a really fascinating book uh, is by the Sufi mystic philosopher, 
Friedrich Schuon uh, called uh, The Transcendent Unity of the Religions, where he shows how you know Islam and Christianity and Judaism and so on all kind of actually at an esoteric level can be seen to uh, be coherent. You know, I should get Charles Upton on to talk about that. As he, uh, we've discussed uh, Shuon and and his movement and so on. Uh, and I think I think Charles, he's he's a traditionalist uh, Sufi mystic, and uh, he finds that the uh, some of the people who've gone too far in the unity of religions thing. I mean, we we all admit that yes, they are ultimately all about the same thing, but uh, when you start mixing and matching. Uh, in in some of the ways, and you know, Shuan actually you know went through some very strange phases of doing that. That you can kind of you know get off the off the right path. Uh, uh, but I would have to get let Charles probably explain well, that. Well, the, you know, the, the thing is, ultimately, you know, if we want to have a world where people live in peace and harmony, we're going to have to live with the religions and with the scientific worldview, and um, you know, find find a way that we can that we can speak a language that uh, brings us together. Uh, and, and I think that is possible. Um, and uh, I think that, that Shuan's book is actually a contribution to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I actually would agree. And, and uh, in fact, I, I have a, a bunch of his books in my log cabin mosque here in the, in the forest. Um, so uh, you mentioned earlier the imaginal uh, plane. And uh, I guess Ibn al-Arabi has uh, written things have been translated that way. Uh, and uh, so what, what exactly is the imaginal world? Uh, what is the imaginal world? That's a good question. I mean, um, I guess, you know, William Blake, I love his idea that, uh, you know, it's not like we just, you know, we just have an imagination. It's like we, you know, the, the imagination is kind of the human existence in, in its totality. Um, and, um, you know, Terrence McKenna talked about how, you know, we don't, we can't just, we don't just imagine things that are there necessarily. The imagination allows us to look into kind of like, uh, you know, deeper, deeper aspects, like a lens into the morphogenic field of the psyche. Uh, so yeah, whatever you can imagine from a certain cultural perspective, uh, you know, it's going to be totally different. You know, the imagination that I would have uh, about, about the universe is going to be very, very different than what, a, you know, Kogi you know, indigenous shaman would have, or a, a Bwini shaman, or somebody from a different tradition. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, rather than being so focused on the sort of technological development, you know, you know, the sort of material development, which is sort of leading us to a cul-de-sac, if we could, if we could shift our focus to the, the imaginal and, and the capacities of the imagination to, uh, you know, liberate uh, and create, uh, we would, we would we'd be doing a good thing. That sounds That's, good to me. And I think the idea of the imaginal involves imagination having ontological reality. That is, you know, if you're if you're an idealist like Bernardo Kastrup, you would say that since it's all consciousness, there's at some level uh, all if, if you know, the, the bedrock of reality is, is, in fact, consciousness then what we sometimes call imagination is not, oh, that's just your imagination. It doesn't really exist. And then try to explain it away as neurons firing or whatever that doesn't match with anything in, in the true reality, but rather it's, it's just as real as anything else at a certain level. And, and so the imaginal world uh, can be sort of the, the imaginated tre- imagination treated as something uh, with its own reality. Yeah, and I, to- yeah. I totally agree. I totally agree. I think that's very well said. And uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, totally different potentialities, uh, they exist depending on you know the uh, the, the imaginary, imaginary framework 
you know, imaginal framework of a different society. You know, like, like I, I worked with the, the Sequoia uh, in Ecuador, the Amazon, and they say that when they, you know, when they were, you know, more intact as a culture, when they would do drink ayahuasca together, you know, if somebody had like an illness or something, at the end of the ceremony, the shaman would look down and he would have a plant in his hand that, you know, after they did singing all night. And it was like they communicated with the spirits uh, through song and that had actually led to like a new plant coming into creation. Um, you know, that sounds totally crazy from anything that we believe, but I actually kind of think they're just telling the truth about, about you know, based on other things that I've, that I've seen. Um, so, yeah, that, that's just, you know, they, they have a very different imaginal reality than we do, you know. So, so I mean, I, I think that's where, like, if we could um, – find a way to open up the space for, uh, you know, rethinking, yeah, like, uh, you know, how we understand the nature of reality, how we approach uh, reality in general, uh, we could we could have a more beautiful world, for sure. Yeah. How about the way that the alternative healing world, which overlaps with the world of sort of um, this psychedelic exploration and so on, and, and these uh, different uh, views of reality dissenting, with reductionist materialism uh, that uh, those worlds which always have been privileged a little bit in certain ways and today in our politically correct environment you'd think they would be even more privileged in a way that is you know our sensitivity about being too ethnocentric in our western progressivist secular humanistic materialistic reductionism uh, you know we we should be uh, we we should give these indigenous cultures their due and admit that we could be wrong about things and they could be right about certain things. But it seems that even in this incredibly politically correct moment uh, where we're supposed to bend over backwards for every variety of possible identity that's supposedly different from mainstream identity, we also have this weird, you know, this pandemic and you just or a pseudo pandemic, as you recently questioned it in your headline, uh, where, where the message behind this is that uh, trust the science it's uh it's don't purvey medical misinformation which is anything other than who fauci guidance and so all of the alternative healers of the entire world all of these shamans and healers of all stripes are actually uh they have to be crushed and suppressed and censored and silenced it's a bizarre conundrum to have these two forces working at once uh like if, if i say that my wife is a traditional Moroccan healer, which actually she is, uh, and she agrees with me that drinking pine needle tea may have had something to do with my thriving and getting over COVID while being able to continue playing one-on-one -on -one basketball, even as I was coughing with COVID, um, that if I put that on, on YouTube or something, <laughs> I'll shut down my channel. You can't, so you can't mention any of these alternative healing perspectives anymore in mainstream discourse. Do you find this as bizarre as I do? Uh, yeah, that was quite a, that was quite a tirade. It had a few different, uh, <laughs> well, I'm, 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 I'm kind of teed off but, about this, but, um, yeah, I mean, so it's, it seems quite obvious that, um, you know, there's some back, back of the, you know, room deal between the pharma, pharma and the world health organization, the governments and the tech companies. And, uh, part of that deal is that the only, uh, treatments or, uh, you know, methods for dealing with COVID that are going to be promoted as acceptable are, uh, you know, ones that are, are patent controlled by, uh, you know, by, by these, by these pharma companies. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, we, obviously there's the whole Joe Rogan thing right now with the CNN and how, 
you know, they, they totally are uh, mocking him for taking ivermectin, which I also took at one point. Uh, but meanwhile, um, you know, these other these companies are now trying to rushing to develop patented drugs that do the same thing as ivermectin to treat COVID. You know, so they just they just, you know, they don't obviously don't even give a you know, a hoot about human life or human suffering. You know, they just want to make sure they profit on this. And, you know, Gates also kind of demonstrated that by, uh, you know, because of the patent protection on the vaccines, whatever you think of them. You know, they wouldn't allow, you know, India when it wanted to create its own factories to make generic versions of them. Uh, and so on. So it's clearly not obviously about just health uh, and about science. It's about it's about patent protection and control. And uh, yeah, and then of course it's uh, you know it's difficult with a lot of alternative healing modalities because yeah you don't necessarily have the uh, the research to back them up. Uh, I mean that's what's been very exciting in a way, uh, but with other you know problems maybe uh, underneath that with what's happening with the whole psychedelic uh, movement because. Over the last 20 years, they've you know built up the scientific framework uh, for now being able to say you know how psychedelics work in the brain uh, and uh, you know how they can affect depression, anxiety, and PTSD, and so on. Uh, so you know you 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 know it, it does help. I mean, you know, science is not something to be you know rejected. It's just to 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 use it as, as a tool. You know, mm-hmm. but, but it seems like it's not as much of a dialogue on equal terms as it should be that, you know, uh, whenever you're studying things from a scientific perspective, you're kind of trying to be the, the ego in the eye that sees everybody else uh, and describes accurately what you see as sort of an objective, you know, material reality. That's what kind of what science does. And it's done pretty well on an objective material reality. But when you're dealing with meaning and communication with other people and entities, it's a dialogue. And it seems to me that the scientific research on these things, uh, sometimes it it, it transcends this problem, but quite often it's limited by that effort to get away from dialogue and instead sort of write everything as a a monologue. Uh, And so if if the scientist is studying the traditional healer, rather than it being a dialogue between the two from which they both can learn, it's more the scientist just seeing if by doing a double blind experiment, uh, placebo on one side and traditional healers, patients on the other side, will you know will measure quantitatively how they come out, and then we'll either say the traditional healer is useful or is not useful. And I, I'm not even sure if that scientific method should have the last word on such matters. Yeah, I, I totally hear you. I, I basically agree with you. I mean, um. You know, then when it comes to, you know, for instance, experiments. So let's say that some of what an alternative, you know, these alternative healers are working, you know, maybe in these more subtle dimensions that are, that are harder to define and, and also are more uh, consciousness kind of permeable in a way. So that, that, that makes it even more difficult because then the actual kind of uh, set and setting of the experiment, the orientation of the scientist is actually going to affect the, the outcome. So it's extremely difficult. Yeah. So uh, maybe before we've only got about a little less than 10 minutes left. So I'm sure my listeners are interested in your questioning whether we're in a pseudo pandemic. And I, I guess philosophically, in a sense, you know, everything is uh, is coming, you know, is, is, is up for grabs in terms of, you know, pinning down things with words like pandemic or, or pseudo pandemic. But to what extent? In what ways do you, do you think that what we're experiencing 
is not at all what we're being told? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. And I have to admit, I, I, I toggle around on it. So, um, you know, uh, I got very excited by this book uh, that I mentioned, which is, I write about on my Substack uh, by this guy, Ian Harris. Uh, you know, but then when I was three quarters of the way through the book, you know, he, he's been on the James Corbett show a lot, the Corbett Report. Um, you know, but both of them are also climate change deniers. And uh, that I found very, like, troubling. It was like cognitive dissonance for me because while I was very supportive of a lot of what they were saying around the pandemic and the vaccines, um, I then found that I couldn't agree with them on what seems to be like an overwhelming preponderance of uh, evidence around, uh, you know, CO2 and global warming and so on. Um, so, um, you know, I think that, you know, the problem with this COVID is that it definitely sort of falls, I mean, it's very much like a trickster in itself. It sort of falls in betwixt and between. I mean, you know, what at what level is something bad enough that it requires, you know, this level of global health response? You know, ha have the lockdowns, I mean, you know, I mean, Harris talks about how, um, you know, before uh, this pandemic, I mean, the, the, the specifically in modeling they'd done, they, they, they didn't think that the lockdowns were the way to go in this type of circumstance. And they instituted them, you know, were they effective? I mean, they stopped, you know, they brought down transmissions for a little while. Uh, but now, obviously, you know, we're seeing some areas that didn't really lock down and didn't even, you know, require masks and are lower on the vaccine scale are doing better than some countries that, you know, we're super locked down, you know, super masked and highly vaccinated. So, um, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. And, um, uh, you know, it, 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 it does feel as if the, um, you know, it was too much force uh, exerted on society, also considering the effects on global mental health, the amount of suicides, the amount of depression, the uh, financial dislocation and devastation, the effects on like poor people and so on. Uh, but I, you know, but, but it's, um, it's a tough one. Yeah. Well, I kind of tend to agree with you about uh, global warming and climate change. I know some of my listeners are going to start throwing rotten fruit at me and or books. I've had some people send me some, uh, in one case, a really good book from a climate change denial perspective, but it didn't, it didn't change my perspective because it, it didn't quite make a, it made a good case that perhaps the climate change uh, folks aren't 100% certain of all of their details. But the big picture still looks to me like it's it's a lot more likely than not that, that Lovelock was right about the way the atmosphere of Gaia uh, operates with uh, carbon as a, as a huge uh, factor. And that we are, you know, by putting all this carbon back in the atmosphere, making it the way it used to be millions of years ago, may not be actually so bad. In fact, it might even be saving the planet. You know, we're actually next next ice age could take us down to such low carbon it could kill the planet. So maybe there's some uh, force somewhere that's using humans to pump carbon back into the atmosphere so Earth can thrive. Uh, but it's probably not going to be so good for us in the near term. Um, and and so maybe what do you think about the possibility that the pandemic, which seems like it's starting to dial down, you know, human economic activity and, and maybe emissions. Uh, is possibly orchestrated for Malthusian purposes. Another great conspiracy theory. Uh, yeah, that's that's a, uh, you know something that I look at in, in the piece, and I think that's um, a lot of people are having this uh, instinctive uh, reaction to this. That um, um, you know, there, there's concerns also that uh, the mRNA vaccines could over time uh, lead to um, 
situation that where people get reinfected with some mutation of the virus, they actually get more serious uh, versions of the virus for, for something I think it's called ADAD. Uh, uh, I can't remember. Dependence enhancement. Um, mm. Yeah, AD, uh, yeah, antibody dependence uh, or suboptimal antibodies, yeah. Yeah, so, and and there is, like, Alex Berenson is a journalist who's who's following all this stuff pretty interestingly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the idea that we're now giving them to children who, you know, at least until recently seemed pretty much unscathed by uh, coronavirus. Um, Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. I mean, you know, it also, it's like, you know, that, that, but then you can also just think that maybe it's just how capitalism functions. Essentially, you know, capitalism always has to create new markets uh, because it's inherently unstable, and we're kind of running out of normal new markets to create. So, you know, in a way, we're now the the the, the companies are now kind of outsourcing our immune systems, uh, and then they're going to sell them back to us as like booster shots. If they can get <laughs> get away with that, you know, um, so and then also give the governments and the technocratic complex. You know, extremely uh, significant control, particularly if it turns out that people are actually less healthy uh, because of the uh, vaccines, uh, then they're going to be more dependent on future boosters or other drugs and so on. Uh, but that, that's not that's not that's not a known fact yet. So that's that's a bit of a speculation. Yeah, so, but it yeah. seems like reasonable speculation. Uh, some of these people, like uh, Gerd van den Bosch, have uh, suggested that the immune system has a certain amount of energy to draw on, and if it's all you know, doing if, if if it's the uh, the innate immune system uh, or the naive immune system, which is what keeps the kids safe from COVID, because that's the part that doesn't need to have recognized the pathogen to to stop it, then uh, that that is it's good to have that working. And, and as you get older, you lose some of that. But if you put all your energy into the adoptive immune system that can recognize very particular uh, pathogens coming at you. Maybe and, and you're taking energy away from that uh, innate or that naive immune system. In the long run, if you keep doing that with vaccinations, and and you're you may be actually harming your uh, naive immune system, and that might not be so good in the long term. So, yeah, I, I think those kinds of speculations uh, make seem they seem to make more sense to me than the mainstream attempts to debunk them. Who knows? I mean, uh, it's uh, it feels that way to me too, um, and um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it definitely feels like we're, we've entered an eerie uh, new reality uh, where you know truth and truth and, and, and falsity are very extremely difficult to disentangle. Well, we're definitely in an eerie new reality of some kind or other. You know, whether we're in a Huxley novel or an Orwell novel or maybe a Philip K. Dick novel, or uh, or worse, I don't know, but. We need voices like yours to help us at least try to dis- disentangle it and have a reasonably good time or at least a bearable time as we're doing it. And I've, yeah. uh, I've enjoyed right. your writing very much, uh, Daniel Pinchbeck, and I appreciate that you're out of the mainstream and you're telling the truth exactly the way you see it at Substack. Um, congratulations for that, and God bless. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Yeah, people can subscribe on Substack. I also have uh, the liminalinstitute.com where I run various uh, seminars and courses people might enjoy taking. TheLiminalInstitute.com. Cool. And you link that at your Substack, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Highly recommended. So thanks again, uh, Daniel. Uh, really enjoyed talking with you and hope we can do it again sometime. Bye. Okay. Take care. That's uh, Daniel Pinchbeck. He's a very interesting writer, highly recommended, and working at Substack where they actually let you say what you think. <laughs> That's why I'm there as well. Um, Kevin Barrett here. I'm 
should be hearing bumper music right now, and I am. So that means it's time to get ready for the second hour with Matt Errett. So Daniel didn't want to talk about geopolitics, but that's what Matt loves to talk about. He's got a series debunking anti-Chinese psyops, and we'll talk about that and a whole lot more. Kevin Stick around.